Klein, the host of the Ventures Podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 136, and today's guest is John Keaton, founder and managing partner of Torch Capital. Are there parallels between identifying musical talent that will become the next great recording artist and the next great entrepreneur who will transform an industry by building a unicorn company? There are definitely some similarities as you're taking a risk by investing in the artist or the entrepreneur and betting on their ability to execute. We have definitely seen some crossovers from the music industry into tech investing with examples like Troy Carter or Guy Osiri. Well, John is another example of a crossover whose career has transcended both industries and identifying talent has always been a superpower. He started his own music talent management company at a very young age, and he worked on developing the careers of high-profile artists. Since becoming an investor, he made early-stage investments in lots of great companies like Sweetgreens, Acorns, ZocDoc, and many more. Torch Capital is a new investment firm that he founded with a $60 million fund, which will focus on investing in early-stage consumer companies. In this episode of our podcast, we'll cover lots of great topics, like John's early career in the music industry and what he learned from running a talent management company, the details on Inside Hook, a digital media publication that he co-founded and was later acquired, how he became an investor and why he decided to start Torch Capital, what he looks for when making an investment, why entrepreneurs should be careful about valuations, advice for founders on building a consumer brand, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the founder journey and lessons learned around building companies. Please make sure you don't miss any episodes by subscribing to the VentureFizz podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or SoundCloud. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with John. John, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. All right. So, uh, you know, we're going to talk about, uh, of course, your firm that you recently launched, and we're going to talk about lots of different things along the way. But uh, before we kind of, you know, get into all that, there's something that I've noticed of kind of recent times that we live in now where, you know, athletes are actually getting into investing, right? Uh, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. So there's just these uh, changing of ties, you know, celebrities are building companies now. So it's an interesting time. Now we're going to talk about your background as, as a, a manager of musicians. Uh, but I've also noticed that that is a parallel too, where, um, you know, you know, uh, talent managers like, you know, Guy Osiri, Troy Carter, even Bono was an LP at Elevation Partners. And he's now, you know, I think just over the past couple of weeks, they announced he's a board member at Zipline. So what are the parallels of, you know, recognizing talent in the music industry, trying to find that exceptional home run artist to investing in tech companies? So it's a really interesting question. I think there are a lot of parallels I wouldn't say to the entertainment business, but to, to, ma- to managers um, who really are responsible for finding, nurturing talent, helping them find their audience, connect with their market. Um, so the, the, the main thing for me was really, if I said a superpower, I think it's always been finding talent. And early on, I was a musician, and so I, and I love music, and then that translated into the music business and then finding talent around there and in that world. Uh, and I think, you know, I've known Troy for 25 years and, and we used to, when we were both managers, we'd have like a lunch every three months and, and what he's created is absolutely incredible. And Guy, of course, has seen around for, for a long time, but I think it's, it's, uh, the, the celebrity angle on it is a little bit different. I think that's more, it's just a hot space and things people like to do. But I think there are a few folks like the ones you just mentioned who really understand it's a mix of understanding business models and understanding what it takes for talent to, to, to 
build what they envision and connect with people and connect with that audience to grow it. And so for me as a manager, what got me interested in that world was I love music, didn't want to be a musician as a career, but really was much more focused on, um, you know, how, how can I help them build their vision? And, and at first I had to believe that they had what they were doing. They were talented enough and that there was a market for it. And then how do they build their audiences and then trust with those audiences? And then again, get signed to labels and get distribution and promotion and marketing and so on. And so it's very similar on the consumer side, especially of finding entrepreneurs, finding entrepreneurial talent, uh, really understanding the pain point they're solving for, really understanding how big a market that is, if it's a big enough market, and if those founders have what it takes to make it happen. And business models may change, and I think if I look at my biggest investments, whether it's Sweetgreen or Acorns or Compass or ZocDoc, the critical factor has been huge pain point, huge market, and incredible founders uh, that can really break through barriers and are just wildly uh, focused on, on, on exactly what needs to be done every step of the way, but yet still being strategic and understanding enough of who they're trying to serve, what are the different ways they can serve them, and as they grow at scale, which I think is the biggest challenge, how, uh, how to navigate growing at scale and continue to serve those audiences but broaden their offerings. Well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, let's talk about your background. So like, where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Sure. So uh, I grew up in New York. I was born in the city, but grew up in the suburbs. Um, music was my passion, as I just mentioned. So I was a really good player. Drums. I was a drummer. Okay. And I uh, started playing bands when I was 12, and, and that was really sort of the highlight. I went to boarding school in Massachusetts, where I had, it was probably my most successful band at that time, where we ended up performing in, around different boarding schools in front of like 2,000 people. I mean, we were... Wow. To the mighty mighty Boston's. I mean, that was that was the height of my musical career in high school. I peaked early. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, that said, our bassist was the uh, the guy who was our bassist started a band called Bravery, which uh, became had a huge hit song called Honest Mistake, and he actually became a really big uh, musician and artist. Um, from there, I went to college at Wash U, and that's sort of where I got into the music business. I saw. We had a, a, some famous fans come to campus. I was like, how is this happening? And it's a concert uh, committee run by students with the school's budget. So I ended up running that. And I uh, was a big fan of Dave Matthews, who had, hadn't broken nationally yet. And I brought them in for their first show ever in St. Louis and became very close to them. And by the time I grad, before I graduated, I had, I'm on the inner circle of one of the biggest fans in America. So, so how did that even happen? How did you get them to come to campus? Like, did you just find out who they're person there i don't they, they even have a person right hustle, hustle. so <laughs> they had an agent he was blowing me off i kept calling them i kept calling the manager to try to do these dates with the school and i couldn't get anywhere and then one day but i just was relentless just sort of perfect persistence and eventually corin capshaw was still the manager for them calls me he's like look we just fired our agent i'm booking the band we're coming out from Chicago. We have a night off, but we're happy to play your school for, uh, I think it was like a $5,000 guarantee and 300 people or something like that. And I took up the challenge and um, promoted the show, not with the school, it's just sort of on the outside at this point. And we ended up doing, we had to move the venue. We did about 12 or 1400 kids. And the band was like, who are you? And I was like, oh my God, I'm talking to you. <laughs> so yeah, so like, we can stay in touch. And I said, yes, we should definitely stay in touch. Well, so one of those, you know, those, uh, you know, bands that you're like, well, I saw them type of story. So I, I saw them in New Hampshire. I grew up in New Hampshire. So I saw them at New Hampshire College. 
you know, in a small little gym with big head Todd and the monsters opening up. So totally. It was right around then. Yeah. The I, show I did with that was a rusted root. Yeah. So yeah. 95, 96 or something. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it was amazing. So yeah. from there, um, I was also working at the record labels. I was the college rep for Atlantic Records. I was interning in the summers in the city at the different labels, really starting to, to network. Plus, because I was a musician and played in bands in the city in St. Louis, I started following artists and, and, and shepherding some, some of them earlier on. So by the time I graduated, I had two bands I was working with, and I got them both signed within six months of graduating. One to Warner, one to Columbia, and then I started the management company. And I was still involved with Dave Matthews. I wasn't... Um, you know, officially in the management company, but I uh, still stayed very close to them for uh, almost a decade. So how did you know how to get artists signed by major record labels? Like how, how do you figure that out in college? Um, so it's funny when I, when I, uh, after I graduated high school, I interned for Bear Stearns, in, you know, the finance world and research. And I realized finance wasn't for me. It's the last thing I was like, there are all these people who love it and who are, just ravenously reading the Wall Street Journal. I couldn't care less about the markets, but I felt the same way about music and being Billboard and Rolling Stone. So the second I realized there was a music business, I really immersed myself in it. Again, summer internships, anything I could do, work for free, slept on couch, just anything I could do to get in the business. But as much as the finance world in those days was, was a name to me, my brain just wasn't made for it. The music business just laid itself out. And the idea of the relationships and the salesmanship and the relating to artists and relating and, and understanding and loving music. So I understood the recording process and production, touring and absorb, absorbing all these elements. I mean, it was all fun. None of it was work. And so um, when uh, at that point, I already had a lot of relationships at the labels. I, I, I had made a lot of connections in business. Um, having the Dave Matthews relationship was, was helpful too, but really it was pure hustle and, and just meeting people and, and, and believing in, the artists that I was working with and saying, you need to listen to this. This is some, there's something here. And what were the artists or who were the artists that you were representing? First two was a band called the getaway people, which were actually a Norwegian kind of funky soul pop band. Uh, but they were signed out of Columbia records in New York. Um, and I met them through mutual musician friends and they were phenomenal songwriters and, and uh, they had one pretty big hit. Uh, but their second record didn't do as well. And, and so people know the song, not the band. The second was a band called Swimmer, which was an unbelievable rock band, huge buzz. Uh, all the labels were going after it. And frankly, they just choked when there was time to make a record. And it took them way too long to make a record. And the management of the labels transitioned out. And so uh, they released it, but there wasn't a lot there. Yeah. But down later on, I, I worked with I mean, many other artists. That was just the beginning. Yeah, like John Legend and like many, yes. many well-known artists. John Stevens and was still working at PCG uh, was, was one of his first managers. Got it. No, but then you decided to go back to B school. And so did you, at what point did you decide to, to change things up? So I saw a bunch of patterns emerging. I really understood the business and I saw writers and producers and some pretty, pretty big artists. So I was really in the established business at that point. And I started to see what was happening with Napster and the labels took it down and the discussions they were having internally. And I, I realized that clearly things were never going to go back to the way they were. And the labels had such a huge opportunity to win in this new environment, because at that point, music was the most important cultural stamp. It was the most it was the pinnacle, pinnacle of culture. Like people wanted to be rock stars. People were moved by, by the bands at that time. Um, yet they were suing their customers and doing all sorts of, they clearly didn't understand where the world was going and how 
instead of harnessing it, they were fighting it. And I realized that wasn't a recipe for success and that the industry would contract. And I also, as I matured and started understanding business better, I realized there's a lot I didn't know and a lot of bad business in the, in the music industry. So luckily I had some great mentors and they convinced me that I should really uh, learn right and know and go to business school. And, and so I went to Columbia and I graduated in 07. And what'd you do after that? So then I was debating whether to go back in. And the more I learned and the more I saw about the music business, I realized it didn't, um, they, they weren't going to get there. Like this was going to go off a cliff. And so then I started looking outside. I was thinking about digital media and entertainment. And I realized what happened in music that I just witnessed was going to happen across the whole media landscape. And at business school, obviously a lot of people go into consulting and banking. And I started to think that maybe if I got to a place like McKinsey, for the next couple of years, as the world was changing, that would be a really interesting place to, to sit it out. So I ended up working in McKinsey's media entertainment technology practice uh, at a New York office for the next three years. And that was a tough experience, but incredible. Uh, incredibly smart people advising the private equity firms and the parent media companies where the world was going, how they analyzed it, how they, they were always open, very open, structured way of being open to ideas and where the world was moving. And so I learned an enormous amount working there. And then from there, you worked very closely with Jack Welch and, and his whole program as far as his online and like almost like an MBA type of company, right? Like learn from the master, right? Exactly. So uh, I've been introduced to Jack and he was launching, he and Susie, his wife, were launching an online education venture, which to me was part of his legacy. He really created the best in class learning institution for, for executives and, and business learnings at GE. And so he used... And then he also looked across the online education space and said, these, you know, University of Phoenix and some of these big companies are marketing like they have MBA programs, but there's nothing there. So he's like, how can I keep the same price point and create a world-class MBA, partially with the best professors in the world and the best content, but also his practical expertise. And so that's what he was creating. And I was, uh, he, you know, Susie and Jack's right hand and then eventually their COO. Got it. And at what point did you start your own company? So from there, I was pulled into a startup out of London. That was one of the fastest growing London education tech companies uh, to start the U.S. office. And then that was sold to Elsevier. And I still wanted to go back to content. And now I understood how that world had shaken out a lot. And so I started a digital media company uh, with a partner called Inside Hook. And the thinking was, I was in my 30s, single. He was married in his 40s. He'd been in nightlife. I'd been in music. Yet as our lives were going busier, no one was really talking to us online. There was lots of great websites and, and, and email newsletters and so on for, for younger guys, but nothing for sort of the sophisticated, busy guy. And so we started inside book around that, um, grew it to 2 million subscribers pretty quickly. Uh, we launched in 2012. And uh, our thesis was right. Brands would pay a lot to reach this affluent male demographic. But what was interesting is if you think back to 2012, that's when what are now the biggest consumer brands were all being launched. Warby, Casper, Rent the Runway, Everlane, Trunk Club, Dollar Shave Club. So out of those, those trying to reach our audience of guys all came through our doors early. Mm. And so we worked really closely with Harry's and Trunk Club. We helped build their whole list. And I think they were one of our first biggest advertisers. Um, I got to watch basically the evolution of the online consumer landscape and, and how that whole world changed from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0. And as well as becoming really good friends with the founders and sort of getting an incredible insight with 2 million subscribers into the data of what marketing was working, what, what was, how was consumer behavior changing and how were they converting uh, users? 
I'm starting to connect the dots now to my next question of, you know, so how did you get into investing? So that happened in two different ways. One of the, so part of it was just watching how the online consumer ecosystem was developing and getting to know a lot of the great brands. But on the side, even before that, actually back probably at the end of McKinsey when I started working for Jack, I saw the New York tech scene come back. And since I wasn't investing in artists anymore, uh, but I still have that urge, I, some friends or friends of friends or people in my extended network were starting companies in big markets. Kids with, and they were really smart. And so I started seeing entrepreneurs, first in New York and then in Los Angeles, because that's where my networks were. And, um, you know, I think I recognized talent in markets, but I got quite lucky. But I was first investor in the first round of ZocDoc. My second investment was the first round of Sir Kensington's. My third was first round of Compass. Then it was Bounce Exchange and eventually others. And eventually went to Acorns. You're like, you're like this is easy. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I did one investment in the first year and two the next year. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't as rapid as that. That was over a few years. Right. But so all of a sudden, I'm in a position where I'm building Insidehook, and I'm really learning how to build this brand online. I'm watching these other brands being built online. I've invested in a number of companies that are really starting to scale, and I'm starting to connect those dots and, and take the learnings from all of those three areas. And that's when I started thinking, hmm, it'd be interesting to really focus more on the investing side which sort of took me back to my roots, back to our first question of being a manager when you're looking for talent in a, in a number of areas and really diving in with them, working with them and, and developing them and doing that instead of, of music with uh, startup founders. Inside Hook still exists, right? That's the company's still Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm very proud of it. Uh, I really, it, it's, it's stood the test of time. Uh, we sold it uh, almost two years ago. Um, the team that's running it and the creative team is the same team that I hired from the beginning. So it's, uh, it's all the folks that I started the company with still there. And um, yeah, it's doing, it's doing great. I actually think the content's better than ever. I'm, I'm an avid reader and I'm still very close to them as much as uh, I'm a former founder. So you recently announced uh, Torch Capital as your actual investment firm and uh, as a $60 million initial fund that, that you've raised. So, so what, like, what, what are you guys, what are you focused on? Like, what are, why did you decide to actually like create your own, you know, firm with, you know, LPs and raise an actual fund. And what do you, what are you focused on? So great question. And I think uh, a few things happened. Um, once I left inside book to just focus on investing. Um, and as I got deeper in it, I noticed a few things. One is that VCs are doing a pretty overall, we're doing a pretty bad job at evaluating and understanding the trajectory of consumer companies. And when I say consumer, that's very broad. It can be everything from food and beverage to, you know, consumer tech platforms. Um, and, but as long as there's an element where the trust between the audience and the brand is critical to success, we're interested. And that's sort of the area that we look at. So what I was realizing is a lot of brands were coming out of the gate strong, having really strong sales, uh, but they, and then they were valued very highly off if that was a straight line kind of hockey stick type of, of, of trajectory. But that's not how consumer brands are built. And I knew this because I watched Sweet Green and ZocDoc and Acorns and even if I was an invested Casper and Warby. And it's a much more stepped, you sort of rise and you plateau and you rise and you plateau. And that's healthy. And what I was seeing is the VCs were overvaluing these companies. And then when they didn't hit the metrics, they were doing all the wrong things. They were guiding them all the wrong ways. And so... You know, unfortunate examples where I was friends with founders like Ali Pincus at One Kings Lane. You know, they built a phenomenal business in Guild Group. Honest company, they built some phenomenal businesses, but because they were overvalued, when things didn't go the right way, they had them cut costs in the wrong areas. Uh, they, they, they basically told them to do all the wrong things. And I think um, a better understanding of the consumer 
ecosystem and the consumer trajectory over time at scale, you understand where those plateaus are and there are very specific things you can do and the reasons you're plateauing. And that's healthy because basically when you come out with a product, you have a core audience and a specific demographic. As you move away from that, think of it as concentric circles. You move each circle, it's someone who's less interested in what you're doing. So it's either harder to convert them, which translates into higher acquisition costs, or you have to change your product uh, set, set up. You have to have to additional products or market it in a different way because the pain point is slightly different. And so those recalibration times uh, of those plateaus are where brands have the opportunity to do that. And if you just try to go all the way up really fast, you fall really fast. And that insight and understanding, which I learned from working with all these companies in inside open investing and also through building brands myself, turned into being really unusual, unique set of uh, experiences that founders seem to, uh, to appreciate. And so when I realized we sort of had a unique perspective of how we looked at these companies and how we guided them, uh, that's when I said, okay, this makes sense. I think we can actually be really helpful in, in, the, in the VC role. So what I've observed, uh, to, you know, to talk about what maybe um, entrepreneurs and investors are approaching things differently is, you know, they do kind of hit a critical point of uh, growth and mm-hmm. then the VC is okay. we got to throw more cash at this for more acquisition and then do it again. And, and then, you know, the valuation just continues to spike and it becomes a valuation that's unrealistic to ever, you know, to the industry they're in. I mean, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. So the, the valuation piece, I've had this conversation with other, um, uh, interviews where it's just the, you know, entrepreneurs, they want to go for the longest valuation, but it can also be the, you know, what bites you in the end. Right. Like hundred percent. And we have very frank discussions with our, with our founders we're saying, look, the best the best valuation isn't the biggest valuation because A, you have to hit those numbers. B, you have to beat that valuation to get to the next round. And the pressure becomes more on growth than on uh, than on, on actually just executing really well. And 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 often that what, what you lose in that is the ability to be really strategic and to take a deep breath and sit and think because you're so busy executing to hit those numbers. Um, I can give you an example where a company that's obviously not huge did this amazing, which was Sweetgreen. Um, when they raised their G round, they said they are not going to open. They're going to open more stores. They are in seven markets. They just opened Chicago. They're going to open no new markets for at least two years. And I was like, <laughs> thank you. And what that enabled them to do, so there are two reasons. A, they have complex supply chains with all these local farmers and so on. Um, B, there was a lot more room to to, to open new to, to the existing markets they had to really double down in those markets. But what it also did was enable them to really think about innovation and really constantly think about their customer base. What else can we offer? How can we do this better? And those three guys are three of the most thoughtful founders I've ever met who understand brand better than anybody. And what the music, the lines, how you think through technology, uh, there's so many different elements that you wouldn't normally think around a restaurant chain that they thought of. And they had the flexibility to do that because they weren't trying to grow 20 markets in two years and, and just trying to catch up with that. They did an incredible job at executing in those markets, but it also gave them the freedom and flexibility to come up with the ideas and test things, which is now why they're just valued at $1.6 billion. And I think they're going to leapfrog the whole fast casual space and they will be the leaders in that business. But if they tried to grow too fast or meet unrealistic expectations, they never would have had the time to put into figuring all that stuff out. Yeah. I mean, they would have expanded to every major market and we're going to open all these stores and they wouldn't have had the right operational efficiencies, the supply chain, the customer experience. The whole time, rather than being strategic and being able to like manage, manage growth, think next level. They wouldn't have been able to do that. Exactly. 
Now, now what, what, um, like in terms of your investments, like what amount of capital are you typically investing in, in, in what stage? So we do seed in any rounds, um, and we have a very collaborative approach with it. So I did, I've done well in this business because of all the people I've worked with, whether it was founders or other VCs, angels. So our feeling is we're fairly agnostic up to that point. So we'll write a first check. We generally want to see some a product or some degree of, of, of revenue or traction. Not always, but I'd say we do probably like 500,000 to a million in a seed and one to 3 million in an A. Um, but we'll generally step up. So we'll do a part, we'll get up to our allocation to do the seed and then more in the A. And what that enables us to do is bring in other investors around us. So we don't need to take the whole round. I don't ever want to take a whole round. We like working with other investors, sometimes with polar LPs if they're strategic into a deal. Uh, obviously, other VCs and, and some of our founders, we bring in the deals where they have a specific expertise. And, and what, what do you look for in terms of the investment? You actually kind of answered this question very early on in our conversation, but just again, like what are the key criteria you're looking for before writing a check? So again, the first thing is always pain point. And this is why these elements that we look for are really universal across different categories, which is why we can do tech and non-tech and so on. Um, but we look for pain point. We look for how big is the market of that pain point? How good is the founder? And then underneath that is business model. But as we found, business models will change as really good founders grow and figure things out. But great founders will always figure that out. So that's definitely founder founder over business model specifics. But like general business model is always important. Platforms, subscription platforms where you can sell multiple things over time as you gain trust with your audience is definitely our favorite type of investment. Um, and then, you know, we really look at the – and what we evaluate on is – once you have the pain point, we're really focused on the relationship that the company can build with their audience. And that goes right back to the music business. Dave Matthews, I think, was best at this. You know, everyone talks about now it's all about touring. It was always about touring. And they put touring and their audience above hit records and MTV and being rock stars. It was always about that. And that was a great lesson that I've carried all the way through. And the great brands do that. Um, so we really look at that relationship and that everything, what that constitutes is everything from obviously customer acquisition, but also UX, customer experience, customer, uh, service, um, product, media, messaging, PR. I mean, there's so many different elements that create the basket of how brands communicate with their audience and engage with them. Uh, we really looking at all those things and how effective we think that particular company and that founder has the capacity to do that. Do they really understand that? And what's the best way to get on your radar? And, and then when someone is on your radar, like what do you expect out of like a first meeting? So uh, best, so almost everything we do is through refer, you know, reference, like we do, someone else brings it to us. So founders we're friends with, advisors to the fund, LPs, other VCs, executives in various industries. Hey, there's this really interesting company. There's a company we're looking at. Have you heard about this? So generally it always comes to someone we know which is, again, very similar to the music business. All the A&R guys, they don't like just email an A&R guy and those are the ones who sign bands. Hey, check out my band. They'll never respond. They want someone they respect. And if you're good enough, you'll get to someone you respect. And, and that's the first line of filter. So that's the best way. Not just for me, for anyone on my team. There's there are five of, uh, investors on the team. Um, and then at the first meeting, they have to have a really clear articulation of what they're solving why that's important enough that's worth solving, why they're the ones to solve it, and how are they going to do that? And how is their understanding of all the different dynamics of what could make this successful or fail? Um, we do do some brick and mortar. We have some hybrid brick and mortar companies like 
Tia Health, which is both a uh, health plot, it's for women's health a company around primary care and OBGYN, both in-person clinics, like rethinking the clinic in-person experience and backing that up with an incredible platform to track your health and onboard and make sure all the doctors and medical professionals are looking at the same record. Um, incredible out of the gate, but when we met with them, we were, our, our theoretical concerns were, you know, brick and mortar is very different from platform. The founders came from Google. Did we feel they understood the dynamics of how these two parts of the business were going to interrelate? How are they going to market them? Um, did they have the skills to really understand how to build a very structured organization, uh, a brick and mortar uh, chain of clinics? There are a lot of there are a lot of questions. Uh, we obviously were very confident once we got through that process, but they articulated all those elements well and how they would work together and how they would grow. And that's we want to see that in the first meeting, even if they haven't proved it out yet that they're thinking about it the right way. Now, there's been so much, and you already highlighted this, it's so much disruption and it's like next generation or wave of consumer brands. Like, do you think there's still, like, like, are there any other underserved areas for consumer or digital media that are still super ripe for disruption? Yes, absolutely. Um, so healthcare, we just talked about. We have we're three big bets in healthcare, and I think we're going to make a lot more. I think the interesting thing that's happened in healthcare is threefold. One is consumer behavior is finally changing. Like Web 1.0 in the late 90s all crashed with the right ideas that people buy stuff online, but people weren't ready to do that. Um, now people are doing that. Healthcare and telemedicine was something similar, where people were still uncomfortable interacting using you know, online resources to solve their health issues. And also regulation has moved a long way. And so we did a company called Row, whose uh, most famous brand is Roman, that is, uh, you get an online prescription from an online doctor's visit, a prescription around men's health, and they have Rory for women's health. Um, huge company. It's uh, one of our most successful early investments. Um, but what they can now do is not just have your information online and serve you if you have other conditions. And if you go to a doctor and your doctor wants to change a, a dosage or something, they can literally click up a button, go into the platform, and it all will be delivered to your home. It's really seamless. People are much more comfortable engaging in that dynamic. And so as people get more comfortable doing more things online for health, there'll be all these efficiencies. That's one. Second thing is consumer expectations are different, and therefore there's a lot of fragmentation, meaning I don't want the same solution as everyone else. I want something that's much better fitted to me, that speaks to me in a specific way, and delivers it the way I want it, which also creates a lot of opportunities. So not everyone is using the same services or platforms. There's room for those platforms to customize and, and, and adhere to consumer tastes. And that opens up all sorts of companies that are, 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 are moving, uh, moving along. Um, and I think the third thing is just that technology and clinic, on the clinical side and the ability to, to use data to detect, you can do a lot more online than you ever could before that had to be done in person. And I think that's just the beginning. Eventually, Theranos didn't really work out, but at some point, there'll be really simple, easy ways to get blood or saliva, send it in within a day. You can be on a, a, a call with your doctor online. They already have your health record. They can make a recommendation. You may never need to go to the doctor's office for certain things or go to a pharmacy. All this is done in, in, in a very clean, seamless way. So love healthcare, but we're seeing that in fintech as well. Um, Acorns is a great example, or Robinhood, enabling people who've never been able to have access to certain services or opportunities, access, especially in microwaves. And so Acorns, which is the um, fintech uh, app that, that started with just helping people invest um, who weren't sophisticated and may not have had real assets to invest, 
get play the market and eventually grew into retirement savings and, and many other services around the mission of grow your wealth. And so before you need to have a broker and you have enough money and, and talk them through the market and know who has time for that and millennials don't have time for that. They made it easy just rounding up each credit card purchase to the nearest dollar doesn't really feel, you don't feel in the pocketbook and puts it in an index account that you can then track for a dollar a month subscription. And that's also a big deal because the banks are never incentivized to help these people because if they own a percent of assets under management, if you had small assets, you weren't interesting to them. Right. But now with subscription and doing this all through an app and being able to, to connect with the credit cards and your banks, we can automate this all. So all you need to do is sign up and you have money going to the market every month and you can track it and you can learn what compounding is. And all of a sudden people are like, Oh wow, I see. It's very different than saving. They put more money in. They, it starts to make them much more financially sophisticated, but it's by action and it's a very simple action to start. So those are just two examples. Yeah. Acorns is just a brilliant idea. It's one of those like, wow, no, like, no one ever thought of that and it's disruptive yet. It just makes a lot of sense as a consumer where you're just rounding up and it's like, Oh, and then all of a sudden you see your account growing. It was a mix of the roundup, but also the, the customer experience was so easy. They made the app so intuitive that anyone could do it. And that was the real difference. Cause there were some banks in bank of America had a roundup program, but it didn't really gain any traction. Well, it reminds me of like a uh, pill pack, right? A success story up in Boston where they weren't the first ones to deliver uh, you know, medication, you know, in the mail. I mean, there was Walgreens had acquired a company that did that, but the experience was night and day. So what, so what advice do you give to founders around building a, a consumer brand? Because it's not just the logo, you know, the packaging it's, you know, uh, you know, acorns, it was, you know, they had a mission of building, you know, wealth or whatever. You know. So, so how do you advise founders on building a complete brand for consumers? So that's a complicated question. Um, I'll break it down simply. I think the most important things, like I always say, is pain point and market size. But then it really comes down to mission. And it's not just from an impact investing lens. I think if you have a clear mission, and that's very clear and broad from the beginning, Sweetgreen has it, like I said, grow your wealth was the mission of Acorns. And so their first product was invest in the, these uh, investment rabbit accounts. But if grow your wealth is the mission, if, if it was just in, uh, democratizing investment, then they would have been done and that would have been it. And their, their, the, the permission that their audience gave them, they'd have had to struggle to create new opportunities for them. But with Grow Your Wealth, investing is just one piece of that. They then created a savings account program, a retirement account program, a debit card program with enormous amounts of listening to what the audience wanted under that headline. And so they had a really great mission that they could constantly go back to and say, how else can we super serve our customer base? And so to create a great brand, once you have the pain point, the market size and the mission, it's all about how do you, what do, what do your consumers want and need and how do you over-serve them and super-serve them? And that is really critical because a lot of strategy comes, trails down from that. Not how to make the most money, not, not how do we like jack, you know, the price of things for our investors. You have to have a consumer first mindset and everything else comes from there. Um, I can give one funny anecdote. Uh, so I was a very good friend of the Casper guys. They're LPs in the fund. And uh, I was going to do something with them. And I, I wanted to talk to some consumers. And I spoke to a woman who said, my son's a huge fan of Casper. So I call a guy and he says, love Casper. I'm like, oh, what do you like? Do you like the mattress? And, you know, you sleep better. And he goes, no, I actually returned the mattress. So I said, well, why, why are we talking? He said, 
I didn't love the mattress. This was a long time ago. It was their first iteration. He said, but they made it so easy to return. No questions asked. Came the next day, gave me an hour. It was the best consumer experience, and I'm the biggest evangelist for them. <laughs> so there's, it's a lot more than just the product that you're serving, and I think entrepreneurs really need to be cognizant of that and focused on that to be successful. Now, what have you seen like unique customer acquisition strategies that have worked? Like you talked about Casper where all of a sudden people are doing the unboxing videos of their mattress, right? So it's just like that viral effect of someone actually taking the time to show them buying, you know, taking the mattress out of the box. So, so what, um, what acquisition strategies have you seen that have been pretty unique yet incredibly effective? There are, it's so as Facebook and, and Google's gotten so expensive and Instagram's gotten so expensive, companies right. had to really rely on, on a lot of things, which, which is great because it's made things much more, it's made, it's made, it's forced entrepreneurs to be more creative. And if they don't have that creativity built in, um, then it's a question of being invested in because you can't just use those channels for, for your core support. Um, I think content marketing has been huge for a long time, but I think people are getting better and better at it with acorns. It was a key pillar for what we were doing. It wasn't just putting your money in the market, but let us educate you on what's happening and why it's growing and the headlines you're seeing and really help educating people. I think communities are critical where if people have similar interests around a product or a situation, T has been very focused on this. Another, another one of our brands that's been great is a recess. It's a sparkling CBD beverage um, that's around calmness and productivity and focus, but they could, they were out of their store. They were hosting meditation speakers and, and, and mental wellness speakers is, is really, and you can mix content and community. I think that is one really critical area. Um, I think an area that people talk a lot about but isn't effective is celebrities. Uh, I think if a celebrity is genuinely part of a business, um, and there are a few, I mean, Kardashians have clearly done that very successfully and authentically involved, it works. But then they're really, this is one of their core elements. It's not just they give you a little bit of money or you give them some advisory shares. I think overall celebrities, there's too much noise and, and that doesn't really work very well necessarily, unless it's something really authentic. You know, Serena Williams talking about uh, she's invested, she's a phenomenal investor uh, in, in, in products around being a new mom or, 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 or babies and so on. That counts because she cares about, you. clearly she cares about her, her child. And if this is something that she's going to stand behind and put her money in, I think there's authenticity there. That works. But just generally people are always like, oh, we got this investor from this celebrity and that celebrity. I don't think that that is an effective way of marketing. And then I think there's a lot around brick and mortar and experiential and pop-ups and we're seeing them. Um, we have a, a vegan ice cream that's uh, starting to explode called Koku, uh, soon to be called Sunscoop, that had the store on Lafayette Street in Soho. And the whole thing was yellow with vines and plants. You cannot walk down the street and not want to walk in there. And so she got a ton of traffic. And then all of a sudden, it's coconut-based ice cream, delicious flavors with superfoods, lines out the door all summer. And so there, there, there are many different levers, but you need to be creative and you need to know how to really uh, think through that ahead of time. Well, I had the, the, the founder uh, of the brand Dirty Lemon on the podcast, and I just think what they're doing with, you know, transaction, you know, your purchase through instant messaging, you know, so it's, it's thinking of different ways to get to your consumer. <laughs> yeah, and it, I love the way he's thinking about that. I just saw Zach a few weeks ago. We co-invested uh, in a new... Um, Mina, which is a new uh, sparkling water that's uh, sparkling iced tea with, with it's just absolutely delicious lemon, green, green tea, lemongrass, flavors like that. No preservatives, no additives, really simple. 
Um, and so we talked a lot about his strategy and I think it's brilliant because if he can sell one product through text and has all your info, he can text you and cross market things that may be relevant for that audience. And then he can have a data consumer behavior to really get people what they want or recommend new products, what they want, the way they want it, and then handle all the, all the, all the distribution as well. I think he's one of the most creative people in the space. And, uh, it's, it's been really fun chatting with him through his business model and how he's working on that. Now I'm, I gotta admit, I'm in a musical funk. Like I just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find something that's just going to like get me excited, like a new band. So, so what, what, what are you listening to these days? Any, any good suggestions of things I should be listening to? Yes. Uh, two artists who've actually also worked together. I just went and saw them live. One is Daniel Caesar. Okay. Um, it's sort of, I guess, you know, modern R and B, but it's sort of acoustic folk. He's incredible. Uh, he sold out radio city music hall. Uh, so, I mean, he's moving, but you don't hear about him much in the press. And that's what's amazing today is you can have these underground artists, that are actually putting real numbers in seats and, and has real fans. Everyone who ever worked with a song and, uh, an artist for H-E-R is actually becoming really big as well. Mm -hmm. uh, both of them are sort of, I guess if like Erica body was Neo soul in the nineties, two thousands, it's like that crew, for the 2020s. Um, so they're amazing. Daniel Caesar and, and her, uh, I'd say are the two new artists that I've been listening to most. Awesome. I will absolutely check those, those two artists out because I am starving for new music. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all the great stories of, you know, your different career paths. And of course, what you're doing with uh, Torch Capital. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Really, really fun to chat about it. And uh, thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.